0: So, uh, alright, um, it gives me great pleasure to welcome you to this uh, seminar in the series Social Movements and Popular Mobilization in the Middle East and North Africa. Uh, my name is John Chowcraft. Uh I'm a, an Associate Professor in the Government Department. I work on the Middle East and especially uh, social movements. And uh, it's a great pleasure to welcome to here tonight Professor Sami Zemni who's come from Ghent University, that's where he's a professor in political science. He's also the director of the Middle East and North Africa research group there. He currently holds the Frankie Research Chair, which is actually a chair devoted to focusing on the Tunisian revolution and its aftermath. And so we're very lucky to have him, it's, uh, I'm very excited that he's here. We've. Uh, I mean, there aren't that many people that can give a serious analysis of the contentious politics of the uprise, of the of the, the lead up to and the action after uh, the the Tunisian uh, uprising of 2011. Um, he's. Uh, Sami's expertise has been on the uh, politics in the, in the MENA region he's paid a lot of attention to political Islam as well as political economy, migration, integration, integration racism and Islamophobia and he's worked also on contentious politics uh, and uh, he's got a, he, there's a publication that's about to come out in the International Journal of Urban and Regional Studies which is called The Tunisian Revolution Neoliberalism Urban Contentious Politics and the Right to the City and and, and he's hoping that this paper will open up debate and I think it will and remember that's partly the object of this kind of seminar our format is not that we spend all our time uh, talking at you from this end in fact Sammy's only allowed to speak for 10 to 15 minutes then we have uh, a discussant and then the discussion is open to the floor you're expected to have read the paper I'm sure you all have because, especially because I think 111 people registered to come but I think that they, once they realised they had to read a paper some of them decided not to come which is perfectly right and proper you know what busy lives we lead but it's a pleasure to welcome you and look forward to the engagement and I'm also very happy to welcome as discussant on this occasion uh, Jan Bodling who do you want to sort of wave? And he's a PhD student in the Department of Government, working on uh, contentious mobilisation, uh, and uh, and he's going to speak for about ten minutes after uh, uh, Sammy Zemni has finished. I also wanted to mention that uh, we have this, um, you know, this is this series, this seminar series. It's part of a research network which is called social movements and popular mobilization in the Middle East and North Africa. And our first publication done through the Middle East Centre, which along with uh, the Middle East Centre and the Government Department uh, sponsor this research network, we just produced our first uh, publication, which was Maha Abdurrahman's talk, which you know, devotees of this series will remember that seminar that took place uh, last year. But this is her paper, Social movements and the question of organisation in Egypt and everywhere, which has now come out. And it's also online. You can find it under if you Google it. And uh, so we're happy to to see that. And remember, if you want to be part of this research network, if you're interested in contentious politics, social movements, the Middle East, please send me, John Chowcraft, an email and I will send you an invite so you can get on the listserv, which we've now made much more useful because every two weeks you get a digest of events that take place uh, and uh, interesting publications panels etc that are relevant to contentious politics in the Middle East and North Africa so you're very welcome to to, to, to sign up to that as well so uh, let's see do please turn off your phones and uh, remember that if you want to tweet about this event the hashtag is give me the phone for that hashtag LSE Zemni so um, you know we you, you're, you're welcome to uh, to do that uh, we will go till you know just after seven o'clock so thank you very much for coming let's welcome uh, Sammy. Thank you
1: thank you thank you john uh, first of all let me thank you and the LSE in the middle east center for having me today and giving me the opportunity to present some of the research i have been doing over the last few years and present mainly some work in progress that i have been doing with my friend and colleague habib ayab i also like to thank sandra for making this a very pleasant and enjoyable trip um, as a paper uh, that we are discussing today has been circulated a while ago um i will not present of course the whole paper in detail and instead I'm going to try to contextualize a little bit more the paper uh, within some current academic discussions um, that it engages with, or tries to at least, as well as present very succinctly some of its major arguments. Um, This paper, as I said, engages with uh, some ongoing discussions within both the field of Middle Eastern studies as well as more general political economy concerns. First, ever since the start of the Arab uprisings, uh, the field of the Middle East studies has witnessed a lot of soul searching, with researchers questioning the validity of their paradigms. Whether democracy spotters or authoritarian resilience experts, the hegemonic paradigms informing most of the academic debates went certainly through a crisis, albeit a short one. Five years after the first optimistic accounts on of the so-called Arab Spring, we are faced today with a reinvigorated debate on democracy versus authoritarianism that is still mostly in the business of explaining, at hindsight, what has happened in the past, and naming and categorizing states, regimes, and countries as if the simple fact of naming suffices to understand the very complex processes of political and social change across the region. Perhaps the most valuable outcome of these debates has been that a third paradigm, which we can summarize or call contentious politics, has now become a potent and vital voice in the debate. The paper that we discuss today departs from this debate. It doesn't have the ambition to compare countries or regimes, nor has it the ambition to end with conclusions that could be easily generalized. Instead, it focuses on one country, Tunisia trying to make sense of how the revolution started and what has happened (coughs) after President Ben Ali has left the country. A second debate with which we wanted to engage um, comes from critical social sciences in general, including political economy and a lot of geography. All these um, sub-disciplines of the social sciences have engaged with the Arab uprisings by linking these protests to the wave of urban revolts and uprisings that have proliferated around the globe over the last two decades. And even though these different forms of social protest emerge in very different historical, geopolitical and geographical contexts, there has been a growing attention to what Negri and Ravel have called the common in revolt. Especially the urban forms of these protests have attracted the attention from geographers, sociologists over political scientists and anthropologists. These so-called movements of pure refusal not only react to the effects of the worldwide economic crisis, but they also reveal a profound malaise vis-à-vis the democratic institutions, or, as in the case of the Arab world, a strong rejection of neoliberal authoritarian rule. Now, this paper wants to engage with these debates by returning to the Tunisian revolution and its aftermath so as to look for a productive tension between the theorizing of political change on the one hand and ethnographically informed research on the multiple forms, spaces and sites of contentions on the other. In the paper, Habib and I... Wrote together, we wanted to do several things, and I reckon immediately we wanted to do too much things, as one of my own self-critiques, rereading the paper on the train uh, this morning, is that, you know, there's a lot of arguments that are bounced and not developed uh, well enough. So we wanted to look uh, what the impact was of more than three decades of neoliberal reforms in Tunisia. We didn't describe these reforms in detail but analyzed how these reforms affected the social structure and what kind of institutions were set up and put in place to accompany um, these reforms and to mitigate to a certain extent the effects of the reforms. And we did this to show that the implementation of neoliberalism in the Tunisian context has had some specific elements. More than in other countries of the region or beyond, the reforms were accompanied by a myriad of social programs to mitigate the devastating effects of the reforms, as well to control the potential threats of mass mobilization. And we found that these social policies were based on a long-standing Tunisian tradition of welfareism. However, while the Bourguibian state tried to construct the basis of a welfare state, Ben Ali's policies were mainly implemented um, not so much as social uh, rights but as social privileges that were granted to those people who were most loyal to the regime. Another way of controlling the population. And in order to make sense of the wave of protests that ultimately ultimately led to Ben Ali's departure, we introduced the notion of spatial social classes. I.e., we tried to make a class analysis that makes reference to specific spatial characteristics as the neoliberal reforms had and still have different effects on the coastal areas as opposed to the south or the center of the country. And This is also important, ladies and gentlemen, we think because the Tunisian revolution did not start in the major towns on the coastal area nor the capital, but started in the largely rural areas of the interior of the country in and around Sidi Bouzid. This has to do with the different forms and processes of marginalization and dispossession that are different depending on the local nature of the political economies. Types and forms of protests are also different based on the region or place where they sprung up. Now what made the Tunisian revolution succeed, at least in its initial phase of liberation, getting rid of Ben Ali, was the fact that these different forms of mobilization and protest by different spatially organized social groups and classes, coalesced in an alliance against Ben Ali and his regime, thus warranting the use, even temporarily, of the collective noun "the people," as epitomized also in the, you know, the slogan of the Arab uprisings: "Eshab Yurid Asqat Nizam." What brought these different classes and protests together was, in my analysis, a moral economy, a set of norms and values that the people believed that the regime had betrayed through the implementation of neoliberal reforms. Now after Ben Ali disappeared, it was of course only a question of time that the people, a Shab, would realize that it was divided, that it was fragmented, that a shared moral economy was actually covering up a fragmented and divided society. And thus ensued a period of political instability in which the constitutional legitimacy of the government and existing institutions was confronted with the growing revolutionary legitimacy of the street, as well as growing tensions within what constituted the people. After many political crises, political murders, a couple of transitional governments, as well as elected governments that were forced to step down, Tunisia has now a new constitution and organized elections that have been internationally viewed as an example for the region as a success. Last week's Nobel Peace Prize that was awarded to the Tunisian Quartet that organized a national dialogue was perhaps the biggest reward Tunisia could get. The institutional setup has made possible a historical compromise, much more than a consensus, I reckon, between, on the one hand, the old Desturian elites that have governed Tunisia since independence, and the newer upcoming Islamist elites. What has been missing, however, was, and is, the political incorporation of the underdeveloped regions. These regions have remained far from the political center, without any power to influence the debates, nor has there there been any substantial economic program implemented to address the social ills of these regions. Therefore, it shouldn't come as a surprise that these regions have now become a hotbed for radicalization within the country, with many youngsters either choosing to leave the country and fight alongside IS in Syria, or choosing to pick up arms against their own government, or become part of growing criminal, criminal networks. And this is, of course, what is still at stake today. Now, it's not so much a question for me whether Tunisia today is a democracy or not, it's not so interesting to name, but at least it has in, um, succeeded in setting up certain institutions that should be able to deal with specific questions that come from different social classes. However, the terrorist attacks this year, the first one in March at the Bardo Museum and the second one uh, on the beach of Port uh, al Kantawi and sousse in June, have, of course, reinvigorated the, I would say, authoritarian political culture of choosing security above any other discussion. So I'm afraid that the social and economic demands that had been so um, important over the last year have become or has been pushed aside again from the political agenda and have put security back on the first place. So it remains to be seen, ladies and gentlemen, where Tunisia is heading. There's many challenges, of course, but at least we see that the revolutionary process is still going on, with contentious politics being one of the most potent um, realities uh, in the country, something that is quite often missed by an international public that's more interested in the organization of transparent and good elections. And for the rest, there's, of course, hours I can talk about, but my ten minutes are up, and the rest is in the paper, I hope. So thank you very much. Okay, thank you. you. (laughs) (laughs) So, Jan, do you want to sit here? Yes,
0: please. Thank you. And be careful. It's time as well.
1: Just enough. Do you have these notes on tape, too, or on the computer?
2: Um, no, but I can keep them
1: up afterwards, oh. yeah, absolutely. Just to know how much I need to
2: <laughs> <laughs> Alright, uh, hello, and welcome from my side as well, and uh, of course, especially to, to Sami, and thank you very much for this very interesting paper, and your, um, again, very illuminating comments on it right now. I'm going to keep this, um, as short as possible, because the room is full, and I guess everyone has more interesting questions, uh, at well least additional ones to the ones that I have, um, Right. I mean, I think um, the main strength that, that I would see in the paper, um, you've, you've really mentioned, and, and maybe if I were to summarize them, uh, I would say that um, uh, what I like is the emphasis on, on the fact that a materialist analysis alone doesn't suffice. Uh, we can't explain these revolutionary upheavals by just reference to class positioning of actors. Um, and, and I particularly like the way you bring in ideas about moral economy as an additional... Uh, element to that and, and actually as one that's, that is more important. And, and I think the way you pluralize both um, uh, the uh, economic effects, the economic elements of your analysis and uh, the moral economy by drawing on ideas of, of differentiation in space um, is, is, is very powerful. Um, And I have a great deal of sympathy for your use of a sort of Harveyian, if you will, uh, uh, logic of of how um, uh, certain forms of primitive accumulation in that produce uh, uh, uneven development and sort of lead to a situation where you have um, sort of domestic centers and and peripheries uh, that then again you use to to highlight how that leads to differentiated uh, 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 aspects in the moral economy of those particular places. Um, and so, what I think is a great s- strength that comes out of that is the locality and specificity of your argument, um, and uh, and particularly as you mentioned, um, at the point that you can uh, uh, through that differentiate it from uh, uh, a point that would say, oh, this is all part of uh, you know a more global phenomenon of kind of very similar uh, urban types of 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 revolutions that we're seeing or uprisings, upheavals at least that we're seeing. Um, across the globe. Um and, and but what I think um I would like to dwell on a little bit more and and um you haven't really mentioned that uh, enough, it has another strength. It also um uh uh really does away with an idea uh that there is a pre constituted kind of be it class or whatever collective actor. I mean a pre constituted revolutionary subject as it were um, uh, neither is there the popular classes, uh, um, right, as as you differentiate from that. Nor is there, and that's something you mentioned in the presentation. Now again, nor is there um, a sort of hard and Negri type um, uh, immaterial labour, new proletariat of sorts um, that that sort of sparks the the, the revolution. And um, well, I mean, I think that I, I, I agree, basically, or I find very illuminating the entire analysis of the, of the post-Ben Ali politics that, that you provide, um, especially how the emergence of um, um, uh, Tunisianité uh, serves as uh, a way to uh, uh, basically counteract a lot of the centrifugal and, 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 and fragmentating tendencies that emerged after Ben Ali's departure. Um, Maybe one thing that I would press you on in in this regard is um, I don't know why you remain uh, quite descriptive uh, in, in, in this part and don't build this further into a point that would say something like, for instance, uh, that uh, what Tunisianité actually did is something like the constitution of a new historical bloc. Because elsewhere, you actually speak of it as, as a homogenizing practice, right? So um, why, why don't you extend that, uh, I guess, with my first question? And then the main criticism, I think, that I have is, is very much related to that strength of them not being a pre-constituted actor. Now, you don't have that, so you have to explain how it came about, right? And you refer to the formation of the people, um, as it were, several times but I actually think you don't really provide a very strong answer as to how that formation happened. You referred mainly now in your presentation again to the idea of a moral economy. Um, I think that has a lot of strength but it also has a problem namely that that's a process that takes time so how do you get to uh, any sort of account as to why did this happen, why did mobilization happen uh, at this specific point in time, whereas, you know, your main explanatory mechanism is, is something that that is rather long-lasting. Um, and, I mean, you do have a number of, of sort of more innovative or spontaneous things, that, dynamics that happen in the moment. You mentioned the... the um, um, uh, as a matter of fact, I mean, um, uh, I think it's good to quote here for, for a second just your paper. You say, when the revolutionary energy engulfed the capital across class alliance of protesters... Formed, and you go on. Um, the emergence of the people as political subjects, wo- um, uh, as political subjects, is what constituted the most tangible and enduring feature of the Tunisian revolution. But then again, I mean, the way this is supposed to happen, there are very few examples of what actually happened in that moment. Um, one example that you give is the practices, the newly emerging practices of solidarity. Um, another example is, the, um, is of course, the self-immolation of, um, of Mohamed Bozizzi. But then you actually get, using that point, you get into the arguments that we've heard quite several times, namely that this produced some sort of new element of identification, and then you get a little bit into mentioning frames and, and, and for instance, limbs paper. Um, uh, my fear with this is always that it gets us into a very much technology communication focused argument that doesn't quite say anything in terms of ideational content. Sort of what what actually what were these ideas that then were formulated that brought people together. So I'd like to hear a little bit more, I think, about that. Um, and um well, I mean, the, the same holds, again, What I for what I think is the strongest point, namely that of moral economy. I mean, you, you're talking about the, the shared feelings of injustice and indignation. Um, but my problem with that is, again, the formation of these senses, of these notions, remains very vague, and um, we don't quite see how they... In that moment, when, as you say, uh, you know the the alliance formed, when the different sections of society came together, how it in that moment receives this unifying energy. So um, I think this would be my main criticism, and and the point I um, I think um, it would be great to hear to hear more about. Um, Yes, thank you. Thank you. Hey, great.
0: Thank you. Thank you. So, if Sammy gets to respond to that, and then uh, and then we can open up the discussion.
1: Um, thank you, Jan, for uh, your comments. Um, very positive and also very thought provoking. Um, I'm not sure that I, if I can respond to all of the questions uh, now, um, but let me start by the end. Um, one of the things you said that um, by using, for example, LIMS paper I might go into the direction of uh, overemphasizing the, the technology side of things. Um, I, I certainly didn't want to do that and I think I referred to it that you know, it's um, the people made a revolution, not Facebook. Uh, but what I, I would suggest is that in Tunisia in 2008 there was not around Sidi Bouzid, but in Gafsa, a major local revolt. And we could ask the question, how does it come that in 2008, this uh, this didn't spread? It remained within the region. And in 2010, 2011, it spread throughout the whole country. So that's indeed the difficulty. But one of the things that um, we know now, of course, at hindsight, is that... um, the people who were involved in the uh, revolt of 2008 learned a lot from what they did or did not do. And for example, one of the things that the local union militants uh, in Sidi directly did was to reframe the Bouazizi story um, in a story of uh, a fight for dignity, uh, a universal cry for citizenship, um, and indeed the longing for, you know, um, for change. Because they knew they needed some sort of, um, you know, slogan that, that could bring in the other parts of Tunisia. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for that they used white lies. They, it was his uncle who basically said, well, you know, he's um, um, somebody with a higher educational diploma... Uh, and didn't find a job and this and that, while it's completely untrue. Uh, uh, I think he went to school till his 8th or 10th year or something like that. He was a dropout, actually, of, uh, of secondary school. So, the, the point is that, of course, technology just helped spread the message, but the message was the most important so that people could connect to it, even though they didn't know Boazizi, they didn't know the reality because it was covered up with white lies, um, they knew in Sidi Bouzid that if the people in Sus or Tunis want to listen to us, we shouldn't come with our personal demands or our local demands, which in Sidi Bouzid and around is mostly tied to issues of access to land and access to water to irrigate the land. But that's not universal enough to bring in the middle classes of Tunis, for example. So they knew very well if... They will stand, if they want to stand by our side, we need another story. So the story of um, a highly educated person uh, not finding a job in the center of Tunisia was something that that spoke to, yeah, let's say, the people because, you know, it was across classes. And I do think that this um, is tied to this moral economy um, because... There has been since, um, when, when, when you look at Tunisian political history, this tension between the hegemony of the Desturian elite and its discourse on Tunisianité, etc. Um, that was in with a certain moral economy, and the problem with the idea of um, moral economy is that it came to Middle Eastern studies by way of the work of, of Scott, the anthropologist who worked on rural uh, Philippines. Who, in my opinion, and I'm not alone by that, in in that I think there's a lot of um, people already in the 80s who suggested it. And the problem with him is that he sees hegemony and moral economy as a zero-sum game. As if hegemony is for the elites and moral economy is for the subaltern, who from time to time revolt against you know, what they perceive as, as, as being unjust and so on. But my point is, is much more that it's a very relational thing that you have to look at the material and indeed, like you said, like you mentioned, the ideational side, the ideas that, that lay behind it. It's not a zero-sum game. It's uh, it's a fact of give and take. And in the Tunisian context, I think that has been um, visible over the last uh, decades, where this discourse that the lower classes, whether they are in popular neighborhoods of the bigger towns on the coastal areas, or they're on the interior of the country, they share a certain set of norms and values that actually the elite, at least in word, you know, agree with. But of course, it's how much can you give, how much you want to, uh, how much can you offer, basically. So this fight has been going on. So the Tunisian history also has, um, you know, is is based on former and prior forms of resistance. Even though we all know that the Tunisian state was under Ben Ali a very repressive police state, so it was very difficult um, to uh, to oppose anything. Basically, but there was this tradition of. Um, a continuum of, of discussion, relation, and tension, almost a dialectic, I would say, between hegemony and resistance, between hegemony and the moral economy of the subaltern classes. So, yeah, these feelings of indignation, and uh, and thus the, the, the call for dignity, uh, uh, stand central. And that's why the Tunisians have never and have always refused the term the jasmine revolution, uh, and they called, it, they called it revolution for dignity, yeah, for karama, um, because they, they, they understood very well that this is what could bring the people into, <laughs> into being, I would say, during the revolution. However, it didn't last long indeed. Afterwards, the internal divisions sprung up very uh, quickly, not only over strategy, but also over um, more additional uh, issues identitary issues and so on uh, and we were not in front of only a state building process that's how most of the um, I would say the democracy spotters or authoritarian resilience people would uh, look at it in terms of institutions it was more a nation building effort in terms of defining the nation and defining who the people was so once they had a com- one as long as they had a common enemy, Ben Ali they could, you know the people was one. But once he disappeared and people started defining what the Tunisian people was, is, or ought to be, then, of course, the the diversity, the pluralism, and the the tensions within that category of the people uh, became all the more obvious. (coughs) So that's, in a a nutshell, some of the issues uh, you you touched upon. Thank you very
0: much. So floor is open. And if when you uh, um, make your comment or ask your question, because you're allowed to do more than just ask a question, because that's the way this seminar is supposed to be set up, to, if you just say who you are and what your affiliation is. <coughs> yes? Uh, hi. Um, thank you. My name is Mr. Rappas. I'm in the same location as I'm with
3: I really enjoyed the paper. I was enjoyed to read it. I thought it's quite insightful. Uh, I be Reading and hopefully published as well. I Thank have you. two, having researched a bit with uh, Tunisian politics it, under Ben Ali, I have two comments that might hopefully nuance the paper a bit. Uh, the first is uh, on what you say uh, on page 22, essentially, that the state under Ben Ali was the sole generator of a narrative of interclass national unity. And this is something that uh, permeates the paper. I'm not sure it's actually the Tunisian state under Ben Ali that solely does this. Uh, Part of how this Tunisian framework came about was not just the state or the regime, it was also the media, it was the European Union, it was international organizations, it was the United States. It's all these people, it's the Tunisian people themselves that still espouse this aspect of Tunisian U.K. that, that, that um, has resisted the Tunisian revolt if you want, of 2011. So I think you can nuance that at that point. Uh, and the second thing is about this inter-class national unity. Uh, which I don't understand, because there is an enemy out of this narrative, and the narrative that the enemy essentially is the Islamists under Ben Ali. So Ennata was portrayed as a, in a very internal Orientalist sort of way, as the enemy, <coughs> as these um, the zone d'ombre, these zones of shadow that needed to be eradicated. Mm-hmm. And this again is something that the Tunisian people as well perceived of and, and and believed, because they were aware of what was happening in Algeria, for instance, the civil war that ensued after the came to power there. This is something that, again, is not state-generated. And finally, uh, the other thing is, uh, your critique of um, Tunisian neoliberalism, and you say, of course, that it's something that failed, it's something that didn't produce any results, and this is something that, yes, we can say in 2015, but in the 1990s and 2000s, the narrative, as I understand it, was very much the narrative of economic success. You couldn't find books or authors that were talking about Inequality. We found uh, reports from NGOs that talked about the Tunisian economy as thriving, as booming. So there is something to be said about how Ben Ali uses this, uh, that you can nuance it. And this is not just economics, it's more about politics. Because what Ben Ali was saying is that we need to safeguard the economic miracle that is Tunisia. We don't need to protest. We need to work. And this is something that goes back <coughs> to Tunisia. This is something that Mubarak said when people were protesting in Like, these people are not Egyptians. A good Egyptian needs to go and work, not care about uh-huh. politics. So perhaps that will yeah. be a bit more news. Nice.
4: Yeah.
0: yeah, I hear that. Thank you. Yeah, let's. Yeah. Why don't you respond? Yeah, very I can. I can do that points. shortly.
1: <laughs> yeah, the first remark is uh, a point well taken. It's through The the Uh, story of a national unity, interclass, etc., was not only generated by the state, but indeed also by the media and perhaps also the international organizations, the EU, US, etc. And the people to a certain extent, because they were, of course, um, um, carrying further the discourse that was already there by Bourguiba. Ben Ali didn't change a lot uh, within that discourse except, your second point, indeed the Islamists as being enemies of Tunisia, as being foreign imports. And actually the same thing happened after the revolution, uh, even today, uh, it's a little bit less now, five years later, but the first few years when I went back to Tunisia, Salafism was, was uh, Tunisian Salafism, was not seen as something that is part and parcel of Tunisian uh, reality it was depicted as being imported from abroad from the gulf and its unTunisian, etc so um so yes um now there's two things here we can criticize the and, and i do <laughs> uh, the interclass uh, story of uh, of a national homogenous nation etc because there is an enemy, but at the same time it was something that was used. Huh? So it's you know us and them. They are the uh, the bad ones, the bad people. These are actually foreign imports or, or whatever. Huh? Um, so the reality was different, but of course that that homogenizing discourse um, was was part of um, um, a strategy of the elites uh, to create. Um, a certain image of Tunisia that was beneficial to them of course so it 's not about uh, a reality on the ground but about a discourse that that was used and put in place by s- by the regime and you know like like you said also promoted by media and other uh, national and international actors and then what concerns the neoliberalism in Tunisia that today we can say that it was actually th- that it had devastating effects. Um, uh, you're, you're right, of course, that throughout the 90s it was the idea of, of a success story. Perhaps the one real uh, exception, um, or two perhaps, are the books of and the work of Beatrice Ibou and uh, Vincent Guessert. But uh, even though, I mean, I, th- I think it's a, a wonderful book, even though I don't agree with a lot of things that it's in her book of the force of... Uh, I don't know how... It w- I, I read it in French... La force de l'obéissance, I don't know how it was translated uh, for the English market, um, but she was actually uh, a person <laughs> with a lot of difficulties to go to Tunisia to do research, by the way, but uh, writing on how all these people who wrote these reports of the, on the Tunisian success... Uh, formula that they were using numbers and statistics that were completely erroneous, and she was actually trying to show uh, where these numbers came from and that they were completely wrong. So there was, uh, and, and then there's of course a lot of Tunisians who didn't publish indeed in the academic circles but publish more, you know, in, within civil society, especially in France. Um, you know the reality of of these reforms. So we knew it, and perhaps yeah, I didn't pay enough attention because you know, with my Tunisian background, um, I, I kept on going back to the country, even though I couldn't do any research in the country for about fifteen years, um, and and I saw it with my own eyes. Of course, so we were well aware that the story of a success was was not real. That was you know a, a myth um, that was created. But it's true that in the academic circles it was much less known. Also, on top of it, we should not forget that in the '90s, if there were, you know, perhaps five people working on Tunisia within academic. Uh, let's say especially the Angles, Anglo-Saxon world <laughs> uh, it would have been That's a well lot very happy to have right? you here. today <laughs> there's a lot of people working on Tunisia uh, but you know uh, it's different in France where of course with the historical and uh, colonial background there have been much more people who are doing and have done quite some good and insightful uh, research but they tend to le- to less publish in international scientific English based journals And it's only in 2000 that the French people started to realize, oh, we should also publish in English. But they didn't do that in the 90s. (laughs) And I know that because part of my education was in France. (laughs) And it was something that was not promoted, publishing in English language uh, journals (laughs) for a long time.
3: Mm.
1: But thank you for your remarks. uh.
5: Thank you very much for for your um, very interesting paper. My name is Max Galine. I'm a PhD student at um, the Development Department. And I work on illegal trade in southern Tunisia. So your spatial argument is is Mm -hmm. very, very convincing Mm -hmm. to me. I was wondering if you could elaborate on a temporal dimension in this. Um, You made the kind of, I think, currently quite common argument of tying the Tunisian uprising to um, neoliberal reforms in the country, which are yet about 30, I mean, they started about 30 years ago at this point, so we have a very, very long period in which a lot of very, very different things happened, You had the kind of your say, SAPs in the early phase, and then all of a sudden, after 2000, you have a very intense period of, of, of state predation on the economy, and you have the erosion of, of all the bargains of the 70s and 80s that you discussed. I was wondering if you could talk a bit more about when, which straw broke the moral economy, what? Mm-hmm. Which, which of these processes are, are the main ones that you're talking about when you talk
3: about new
1: in that context? Mm-hmm. Thank you very much for a very good but tough question. <laughs> it's a question that I have uh, asked myself and my colleague, Habib Bay with uh, whom I'm writing this paper. Um, we directly had a reflex, okay, if we, if we introduce a spatial dimension, there must be a, a, a temporal dimension too. Um, and indeed, like you said, uh, the neoliberal reform started in 86, when Tunisia um, implemented the, the first phase of a structural adjustment plan. Um, liberalization is older. It's 72, after the socializing, it was not really socialist, uh, socializing experiment of the 60s. But in those two periods, the Tunisian government was the, the main economic actor, whether it was in a more socialist-inspired economy or afterwards an illiberal economy and from 86 onwards very gradually, but it, it was very gradually it started to withdraw from um, its its economic role and indeed the bargains that um, especially the Union, we didn't mention the UGTT until now even though it's very, very important of course, um, these bargains were bit by bit uh, put under pressure uh, but what broke the straw is perhaps, um, and, you know, I, I can't say this is uh, fully developed or argumented, but it's just based on, on a lot of talks I've had throughout well, to Tunisia. It's from 2005 onwards when people started realizing not only the devastating effects of the reforms, but on top of it, the incredible predatory... Um, uh, ways of, of, uh, of the family of the president, especially his wife, mm? uh, which, you know, people tended, even though they didn't like it or they did ne- didn't necessarily agree, you know, the economy is sometimes seen as a force beyond control, eh? you know, this is the economy or the economic system we have to deal with. It's difficult, but we can deal with. But we cannot deal with these people who just thwart any logic, who thwart any idea of justice, or you know. And it not only um, triggered this with with the the lower classes, but also the higher classes. Every form of um, entrepreneurship um, that that started and that would be. Um, even if it were only locally successful, would get a visit of somebody of the family, and you know they they would have to give a part of their earnings or give uh, one of the family members a place on the the board of trustees or the the, the you know a share uh, in the company and this and that. So it it also worked against uh, you know entrepreneurship in general. And this is something indeed. The, the rapacity is, is that English rapacity. Yes, yeah. <coughs> I thought it was uh, Gallicism. No, it works. <laughs> it works. The rapacity of the of of this very restrained group is something that uh, yeah. Throughout all my talks, from yeah, I've been going back and forth since I was born in Indonesia. So you clearly saw that two thousand and five, two thousand and six, that was a, a a turning point. Let's say. Hmm. Okay. It's also in 2005, it was in the news today, actually in Tunisia, mm. the year that the World Information Summit was held in Tunisia, one of the countries that, you know, had a, one of the most repressive uh, systems of control of information. Um, actually, he was, you know, host to the World Information Summit. Mm. And uh, on top of that, Israel was officially invited. It, so, you know, there was a lot of, for the people to... Uh, uh, to oppose, and, and actually first forms of the, the big or very well-known politicians. Some of them are still now running for office or are, you know, leading uh, a party, uh, started a 38-day hunger strike in, in, in that period. So these, you know, little forms and types of protests from, in this case, the political establishment, the political opposition, um, showed that there was something different going on than 10 years before that, basically. So,
3: mm. okay. Hi,
6: um, thank you for the talk. Uh, I'm Saliba from the Berlin Social Science Center, um, PhD student at Humboldt University. And, um, well, you highlight um, the underlying socioeconomic issues at the roots of the mobilization of the uprisings, and I think you make a plausible argument there. Um, And you also, I mean, highlight that they haven't been addressed uh, in the kind of uh, whatever we've seen in the aftermath of Ali, and I totally agree to that. Um, However, you could make the argument that in in transitions in general and in the Tunisian transition in particular, kind of within these phases of transition, right, um, um, we have a focus on institution building. And also on, as you, I mean, you mentioned the identity building um, process a lot, which you've just described as in your first comment as state and, and state building kind of project as well to some extent of a new need, uh, which which I think is a, is a very convincing argument. But there's an institutional side to this, you know, um, which which I think you tend to overlook a little bit. Um, and then you know you would you would expect them to turn to. Um, to the most pressing socio-economic underlying issues afterwards but now we have a scenario with kind of security threat of terrorism overlying and kind of uh, all other poli- political uh, like topics and it's basically the, the big paradigm and it's, it's back to kind of uh, securitization of the state itself and, and of politics and, and um, so I mean I think there's still some loop for action and maybe if we see a uh, uh, kind of a shift towards an opening, kind of political opening to other issues. Um, within a new institutional framework, the main question then is, is this institutional framework and this belief actually able and willing to address those underlying um, mm-hmm. underlying issues? And I think that's an open question to some extent. Mm-hmm. Um, secondly, um, what, what I was a bit um, bummed about, because you mentioned the youth bump, and I think demography is a bit Kind of lacking in your analysis because you do mention the the spatial um, the spatial component and the socio economic underlying socio economic issues and inequality and discontent attached to that. But um, kind of the youth disenfranchement I think, is something that one shouldn't underestimate. Not only in the mobilization, but also in the post um, Ben Ali phase. And I think what we see here is. Um, of course, they still don't feel very represented in the whole political process afterwards, at least from my hunch. Uh, but there is something that has been happening and this, the theme of association has really given people at least a way of organizing themselves uh, to an extent where that wasn't able uh, that wasn't open to them before. Um, they don't really have a lot of impact on the political process but at least they have, you know, means of getting together and, and raising their voice. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the number of political associations, especially really related to youth and driven by youth, it's exploded, right, since 2011. And I think there's, this might be also something that works kind of counterintuitively against, um, against the expectation that, well, they're still not represented, so they should, should still be really discontent and, and should still mm-hmm. protest, but maybe they don't because they at least have something that they've fled into now. Um, despite the fact that the socio-economic uh, underlying um, causes are not addressed, and last but not least on um, radicalization, I would challenge you a bit because, as far I mean, there's of course no reliable data, but as far as I know, it's not only that people from the um, very disenfranchised socio-economic classes in the south and in the west go to 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 fight for Daesh, but also from Tunis and even from middle class. Um, Backgrounds and educated people so that's the challenge there and okay maybe one last point it's on the spatial dimension because you make the regional argument and attached to this is basically maybe we should also look at the local level you know not only because you have areas within Tunis for example where you have uh, kind of socio-economic marginalization and that then again leads to the
4: alright
1: mm-hmm. thank you very much yes. for uh, these uh, different comments Um, are the the institutions that have been set up able and or willing to address the social and economic um, question? Uh, It's indeed an open question. Um, I do think that um, the government is very well aware that this is crucial. And actually I was in Tunisia in March, um, I came back... um, two days before the Bardo attacks. And with all the people I met, um, they they told me the same thing. It's like, we need jobs, 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 and we need to take care of the situa- security situation. Because everybody was, of course, looking at the complete disintegration of uh, Libya. There were... Um, several accounts of arms being brought in into Tunisia, so people were aware that, you know, something might happen. I and mean, Alas, uh, two days later, it happened in the National Museum. Um, so, whether, you know, they were uh, well-informed people or just, you know, my, my lovely family, but not really, you know, studied a lot, etc., that lives uh, far away from Tunis... They all say the same thing, the social and economic question is is the most vital. And it's not only a question of um, wages or higher wages. It's sometimes presented as that because the UGTT, the main union, um, has organized a lot of strikes this year in different sectors uh, to raise the wages. And this has set up some, some you know, discontent with some other people who think, you know, it's not the time to strike and this and that, and you want more wages but we have nothing, and this and that. Um, but this is just, you know, like say, the, the corporatist work of the union, which is very normal, in, sen- in the sense that it just, you know, uh, def- defends the interests of its members. But there is a bigger question. Like, what kind of you know, what kind of economy does Tunisia want? And this can only be addressed, I think, through a social dialogue, which can only be instituted by the government and which should bring together the representatives of the workers and the representatives of the employers. So Basically, in Tunisia, still the UGTT and the Utica, although there is now, union pluralism in Tunisia, also there. So there's at least two, if not three, other unions that would like to be also incorporated in such a social dialogue. And this social dialogue will, of course, they will talk about wages and index and this and that, the technicalities of of, these, of the discussions. But they should also address, basically, what kind of economy, what kind of pri- priorities should be set, and how this regional... Um, uh, the disparities between the regions have, have to be addressed. Are they willing? I think so. Are they able? Um, I'm not sure. I'm not convinced. And this has not only to do with the institutions or the Tunisian actors, but just the sheer fact that this rather small country in northern Africa has a, a co- uh, an economy that's so highly dependent from uh, on Europe uh, and is embedded with international circuits of, of, you know, a globalized economy that it's very difficult for Tunisia by itself to, uh, to come up with, with strong alternatives or at least convincing alternatives not only for the local population but also for the international scene. We know that some left and far left parties in Tunisia advocate for a completely different economic organization of the country, for example, the Front Populaire, the fourth uh, power in parliament. Um, You know, there's quite a a lot of good ideas in there, but it's highly, you know, it's difficult to see whether these type of policies uh, would still then make of Tunisia such a good friend and, and, you know, success story for the EU, for example, because it advocates for a completely different approach uh, as opposed to what, for example, Europe is uh, demanding from, from Tunisia. The demography uh, aspects, um, yes, I don't underestimate, it's not really developed in this paper, but I wrote a little bit uh, in another paper on it, on that uh, urban contention and right to the city paper, is that indeed one of the enduring facts of the revolution is that a lot of these people who have not found their way to, let's say, the formal political parties, are now uh, busy. They have... um, organize themselves in in all kinds of organizations and associations or very loosely you know it's also the creative sector for example a lot of youngsters are doing very creative things uh, both in the economy social economy but also in the arts uh, and and you name it so it has become a a, a voice uh, to the chapter but you know the the fragmented and and largely unorganized form of of these mobilizations in the short term are, of course, not enough to really change the... um, or, you know, to have an inroad in the formal political arena, Mm -hmm. which is still tightly controlled by the same elites who have, you know, controlled Tunisia for a long time, and we have an octogenarian president now in Tunisia, so, I mean, these are not new (laughs) or upcoming youngsters of course that are running the country so it's very difficult uh, for them but that does not mean that indeed there's not a lot of happening um, throughout the country and it's one of the striking things for people who are interested in like, documentaries and, and films on the revolution, there is one particularly interesting but perhaps not that well made um, documentary called Mazuna, which is a small village somewhere between Sidi Bouzid and Gafsa Um, These are basically amateurs who were present during the revolution that didn't know what happened, so they just started taping. They were there for a completely different reason. They actually wanted to tie solidarity networks between unemployed people, youngsters in Paris, with uh, um, degrees, uh, with university degrees, and uh, with Tunisians with degrees without uh, a job in uh, the center of Tunisia. But then the revolution started, so they just started taping, and they they stayed there for for half a year. And what was so amazing that these youngsters, of uh, whom everybody thought that they were completely disconnected from the political, that they were not interested, that they were depoliticized, that from the day that it started, they started to get, one, organized locally, and they had discussions between them that were highly political and very interesting, and they came up with ideas... That were you know uh, interesting enough to to discuss these were not very utopian or um, uh, you know, uh, out of touch ideas, but very uh, you know they had an idea of where they wanted to go with, um, with the country but also with their locality. so indeed, are on those films are available anyway. I saw it in um, on a on a conference in Paris uh, a couple of months ago. So okay. so yes, it was a public uh, oh. viewing. What's it called? What Mazuna from the the Mazuna. small village where okay. most of the work was taped, actually. Okay. Um, so yeah, of course the local is is important, but uh, again, like I, I think I stress in the paper, it's a relational aspect that is in, interesting to me you cannot detach these things. For example, the whole economy of the South um, that you are working on, uh, there's a lot of people from the popular neighborhoods in Tunis that go down to the South to pick up the goods that come from Libya, of course. There's networks uh, of, uh, you know, uh, illegal trade, (laughs) let's call it like what it is, um, that function between the, the big cities, the popular neighborhoods mostly of these cities, and The Tunisian-Libyan border, and also more and more with the Algerian border. And I remember that in 2011, in the east of the country, it was very common to see, uh, at uh, at, you know, just on the uh, on the road, people with pickup trucks and uh, barrels of fuel coming from Algeria. Two years later, you find them in the middle of Tunis, the capital. And it's open everybody knows where these people are and of course these people are selling their uh, fuel for half the price that the Tunisians would have to buy it at, uh, at the petrol station so um, the the informal economy huh, is is uh, thriving and some people say that right now today it's at perhaps sixty percent of the GDP huh, is coming from the informal economy I, I don't know how they come to these numbers sometimes I, I yeah <laughs> I just use them because that's what people say it is, yeah. but I, you know, I don't really understand how they come, uh, if it's informal, how can you really calculate it then, you know. Um, but, um, so, you know, it's not so much that we have to look at the local in and by itself, but the, the relations, the economic relations, that in Tunisia are of course also paired to certain trajectories of migration. I I think I wrote it in the paper, during the revolution, of course, the people in Cibouzit were in contact with parts of their families that had migrated 10 or 20 years earlier towards the big cities, and solidarity networks that were based of, on kinship. Um, they still exist, and also these economic relations are in part, in part, mm-hmm. also based on kinship relations and relationship of mutual of mutual trust and reciprocity and so on. So they are also embedded. Um, in an informal capitalist logic, but at the same time embedded also in local solidarity networks of helping each other out, basically. And then finally, radicalization yes, you're right. Um, it's not only the disenfranchised youth that turn to radical Islam. No, not at all. Uh, there's actually quite a few people from middle or even higher classes who did it. Um, but spatially, there tends to be, you know. Um, more uh, of, a, of a radicalization process going on in the south and the center of the region according to others and my own observations but yeah, it's, it's open for debate so thank you mm. okay very much thank you
0: very much, mm. um, much. i to read
7: the paper and a lot I just wanted to ask about why we use the on page thirteen fourteen I think where you get to talk about it in, in the context of discussion of neoliberalism, but I was wondering if you could flesh it out a bit for us, um, especially whether it's based on field work particularly Tunisia, or is it a concept you think we should use to understand other Arab uprisings which had which came out of this context? because um, it strikes me that I you mean know, we could do, but I would like to understand mm-hmm. why why you chose it. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
8: And
0: whether
1: when you identify some kind of consensus mm-hmm. in the, the vision that is this than among people in interviewed. Right. Mm-hmm. And just say who you
8: are, <coughs> Reem. Oh, I'm Reem. Uh, Reem Al the
1: department. I'm a lecturer at South. Okay. Uh, thanks, Reem. It's uh, a very good question. Um, I, re- if if I'm not mistaken, John, I think you. Um, You heard my first talk on the moral economy in 2011 already at Mesa, Mesa. Mm -hmm. and you intervened because you weren't sure that's uh, you know the right concept. You were thinking more about the horizontal organization, which I don't think I was probably just being contrary. (laughs) 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 They're they're not mutually exclusive. I mean, um, um, you know, it's something that I I you know the idea is to write a book that is called the moral economy of the Tunisian revolution. So uh, it's there. It's still in the future. I still have to write it, but I have been working a little bit on the concept of moral economy that was, of course, um, introduced about, uh, I think, 40 years ago by E. B. Thompson. Mm-hmm. And, and he, of course, uh, situated the moral economy in the face of, of uh, the gradual inter- coming, uh, the, the shift, the transition from a pre-capitalist economy to a full capitalist economy, basically. Uh, but in the meantime other people have done some work with it and transposed uh, it to um, situations within a capitalist economy and I refer to one um, particularly influencing uh, voice, uh, James Scott who in the 70s, I think in 75 or mm-hmm. 78, it's quite early who wrote about the moral economy of the subaltern rural areas in the Philippines um, and the problem with that type of work and perhaps also why it was um, forgotten during a while, is because it was um, presented as a zero-sum game. You had the moral economy of the subaltern and hegemony of the elites. And, uh, you know, you had one of the two. But I don't think that's right, actually. When you go back also to Gramsci's concept of hegemony and how it works, etc., uh, it, it, you can actually um, uh, put moral economy in a dialectic relationship with that uh, concept of hegemony. And that's what I uh, wanted to do. And indeed how I came to it, it's not that I thought, oh, well, you know, I I saw that book and then the revolution came and said, well, it's a good framework. It's indeed by talking, the first discussions in Tunisia I had were just, I, I really went even without a real clear research agenda. I just, you know, being also a Tunisian I was just interested and I wanted to soak up everything and it's some something that gradually dawned upon me indeed by um, at least during the first few months that people were using the same words uh, whether they were in Tunis or in a small village far away whether they were high class low- class work or without a job that they referred and used the same type of words so I started to to work with that that's like how does it come that they I'm not going to say they gave all the same answer, but you know, very um, answers that resembled one another. And and that's when I came up with, with that idea of there's something that links these people together, that, that, that brought them to the streets, and why they are convinced that uh, this is a good thing that happened. And even though they were already then, in 2011, very afraid or having a lot of big question marks of the future of the country, uh, they were still very proud of what they did, getting rid of Ben Ali. And, and proud of, of, you know, the Tunisian way of doing it. So what, you know, I wanted to understand what, mm-hmm. what brought them together. And that's, I, I think then, there, the concept of moral economy helps me in, in explaining um, the coming about of the people, but also showing um, the, the tensions that exist within and with the hegemony of the ruling elite, ba- basically. So, I don't know if that's any answer to your broad question? Yeah. That's how, yeah.
8: yeah. Um, William Burton, I no, just uh, <coughs> completed a master's course at uh, awaiting the result of my dissertation. I'm um, going yeah. pick up on your answer to the previous one speaker, where you. Talking about the informal economy, and at the beginning of your presentation, you suggested that it was difficult to uh, differentiate, you know, between the two hundred and eight, two thousand and eight uh, um, strikes that happened to do with phosphate mining, etc and also to what happened in two thousand and ten, was easy Well, surely in the two thousand and eight, they were part of the official economy and is very much related to the unofficial economy. And would it, could it be in your opinion that this um, made the people relate more to easy pair because they, the people felt that the government had actually crossed the red line and gone into the informal economy? And also too, with this informal economy, is that going to be a hindrance to future democratic um, stability? Because it's my understanding that to have a successful democracy, you have to have um, a good um, <coughs> civil society, um, and that needs taxes to run it. we haven't got a, an economy that's producing taxes, you can't get a civil society. So, how although you did reference the importance of the informal
1: economy, is that possible to expand on that, on, on your opinion on that? Thank you. I'll, I'll try. You, you've, you're very right that 2008 was, of course, uh, the Gafsa region, which is a mining region, a very formal economic setting. Of, of course, there's also a lot of informal activities going around uh, that region too, but the, the, the crisis started within... Uh, the big factory that that um, uh, extracts and transports the phosphates that are to be that are found in the mining region over there, um, while indeed Boazizi had more to do with unofficial economy and uh, basically his whole family stories uh, is tied to issues of land and, and, and access to land for agriculture and uh, access access to water so that that is indeed quite different. Um, does that mean that the Tunisians could um, relate more to Boazizi? I'm not sure, um, because like I said, they really used in the beginning these white lies, they didn't present Boazizi as, an, as a worker of the informal e- economic sector, um, he, they, they said that, but it was, it was a necessity for him because with his uh, degree he couldn't find a good paid job, which the government was uh, expected to give him. Um, so, I, I'm not really sure whether, you know, then, I, I think it's more the act, of course, as a, of, you know, his ordeal of setting himself afire that, that spoke to people much more than um, a, a contained revolt in one region. But, the Tunisian government tried to do the same thing with, uh, with Sidi Bouzid as they did with, uh, with Gafsa, but it didn't succeed, and we don't really know, I mean, is it, you know, the odds of history, uh, or is there something more to it, I don't know. They succeeded in containing Gafsa, there was very few information that, uh, that, that you know, uh, get out of, got out of the region. If not by way of Montreal, where a very active Tunisian community uh, tried to, um, to bring attention to what was going on in Gafsa, while in Sidi Bouzid, very quickly we saw that, that people were taking up that story, <coughs> not only in the country and in the neighborhood uh, of Sidi Bouzid, but even abroad. Is that technology enhanced? Does these four years make a difference, perhaps? I think so, that indeed Tunisians got more acquainted with certain technologies that were easy to spread. Um, The generalization of the very classic portable phone, you know, I'm not even talking here about social media, but just, you know, the cell phone. there uh, you know, I remember that that market in the two thousand and five two thousand and six was much more expensive than in two thousand and ten. There was a big competition between firms and you know it's true then that even people in very uh, remote areas with much less money still had enough money to to buy a simple phone and and, uh, and a paid card and you know uh, and could call and they would you know so i'm not really sure if if Boazizi spoke more, perhaps, because he's also young, and Tunisia is a young country, perhaps. Now, informal economy, um, uh, it is indeed, I think, um, a liability for future political stability. On the other hand, when we say informal economic activities in Tunisia, it's not a black and white thing there's actually a lot of people who are trading in illegal and informal goods um, that do pay taxes and there are certain people that control these businesses so it's more um, a weakness of the state that it cannot confront directly because it, know, it knows the state knows that so many people live off it that they can't close it down as such ...even though there's punctual uh, crackdowns... Uh, ...especially at the marketplaces where these people tend to sell their uh, products. Um, but today I see more of a containing. More than, than repression or, or an, uh, a normalization. But I think in the future the only possibility will be to integrate these sectors... ...in the, in the formal economy structures. However, a lot of people, even today that are paying taxes they they calculate of course they say what would it cost if I would you know become a legal economic actor and it's a the cost is too high basically for most of them so as long as that remains I think this sector will will grow or at least you know will remain as large as it, as it is today so there's a tension there but the state is very well aware that it cannot just crack down on it. Too much people are dependent for survival uh, and for, or you know, for having a decent life. Um, but I haven't seen anybody come up with a good solution to it everybody, it's like one of the elephants in the room. I mean, there's a couple of others in Tunisia, I think, but this is one of them. All the political parties talk about it. We have a problem with the informal economy. But there's nobody, as far as I can tell, that has a clear idea on how to tackle the issue. So what they do now is, is some sort of give-and-take containment policy towards that, that sector.
8: Mm-hmm.
7: Um, my name is um, I just want... I think that's going to continue from like, your talk and various other talks. Before even tackling the economy for like Tunisian economy, shouldn't the sectors, first of foundations of different sectors in Tunisia and the union, build itself so that the state could then build the economy? Because we majority of people that visit Tunisia or know Tunisian sectors know that the the sectors are torn apart. There is no real um, achievements among the sectors itself and therefore that's the the big tension between the state and the union and that's the reason behind it and another thing is um which you actually touched upon about how um Tunisia's economy is reliant on the European um, bonds between them that were put through by Boulgiba before um, do you think that those ties should be looked at again before they think about revisiting or providing a new economy for tunisia who's just uh, two questions that I was
1: thank you i i didn't can can you just tell me what you mean exactly by sectors do you mean the...
7: like the informal economy trades that are happening that's one sector also the um, industries among like Tunisians economy like even the like phosphate, for example, yeah. um, even the, t- the tourist sectors as well. That's that's also dying, especially after the stuff, mm-hmm. but after what happened. So various sectors, all of them are contributing in the economy. If you call it contribution, they are not perfect. <coughs> there is no even a good. Um, I don't have to explain like a, a good example for us to even look at. Um, among that sectors itself, so shouldn't they really focus on that first, before thinking about the bigger economy, or where is Tunisia in the economy of the world?
1: Okay, um, I mean, I've never looked at it like that. <laughs> Uh, how, you know that the sector should organize themselves before, you know, uh, organizing the economy. Um, I don't think it, it works that way. I mean, um, the, the sectors are what they are because there's a certain economic policy that is followed. So, um, who are the actors who can discuss these things? Well, obviously, political parties have a say on that in parliament, and then you have an elected government, and uh, some parties um, are. Uh, much more pro business others are much more pro social justice and there 's going to be you know a trade off between the two. but, like I said earlier, I think right now Tunisia is in dire need of a, of a structured social dialogue that does not only uh, tackle direct issues of wages and and so on, but indeed what kind of developmental model Tunisia wants and needs and is possible and that ties in with your second question. Um, when I say Tunisia is dependent on the EU, I'm not saying that Tunisia is, you know, um, um, uh, bound by hands and, f- uh, and foot um, on, on, on what the European Union is saying or doing. It's just the, the simple fact that about 90% of its trade is with European Union countries. So where uh, where is it going to sell its its products? I mean, alas, it's not going to be in Africa and the market is not big enough and... So it's not going to be the brotherly countries in the region who have refrained from major investments in Tunisia (laughs) anyway. So uh, it's a small country and it's integrated in a global economy. So there are certain parameters within which it will have to work, except if we make, you know, some sort of, uh, you know, the revolution goes on and they choose a completely different developmental model. Technically, it's possible, but whether that would be a success is another question. I, m- like I said, I think I mentioned it earlier, um, a group like the, the Front Populaire, eh, the Popular Front, has uh, very you know, uh, far left ideas on how the economy should be run, uh, where the state would uh, play a very important role. Uh, this is indeed at odds with what the Re- European Union and the international institutions and the US is saying where they want more a managerial state that organizes a free market, basically. These are different models that the Tunisians should be able to freely choose themselves. Uh, I agree with you on that point. Um, And uh, as a citizen, I might have, you know, my own preferences, but as an analyst, I would have to say that, you know, it's um, it's only a minority that really would choose for a delinking that would go for, you know, a very... uh, you know, uh, radical uh, political economy. Uh, The question is, will we have a policy that is geared more towards the free market and we would go on further with what we have had the last 20 years, or we will have more of a social democratic model? These are, I think, the two models that that in Tunisia today are debated. And it will be um, a discussion between these different um, classes, different parties, who have clearly a a different agenda in these uh, matters. Now, what makes the situation even more difficult, and I would say dire for the Tunisians, is that you have the two main political protagonists, and Nahda and um, Anida Tunis, that both are not very clear on where they want to go with their economic policies. And Nahda is actually going in the direction of, I would say, what Christian Democratic Parties were saying in the 50s and the 60s throughout Europe. And I come from a country where the Christian Democratic Party has been very, very big and uh, powerful, Belgium. Uh, because the Nahda talks to different segments of society. It, you can make an, in, a, a, you know, a, a cross glasses, uh, basically, um, constituency. It... Um, it has this, um, you know, it it is for a free market economy, but wants to, you know, add some morality that is based not in this case in, uh, in another. It's Islamic morality, of course, with Christian democratic parties. It was Christian morality that would mitigate some of the most, you know, harsh effects of of, of a free market. Uh, and Mida Tunis is another story where you have basically, an, uh, the, the, the party is actually exploding, huh? uh, there's last two, three weeks, very um, big tensions within the party, uh, between what we could call, to, to make it a little bit simple, a social democratic wing, that indeed has a lot of people who are active within the UGTT, that also within that party, and a more pro-business and entrepreneurial wing of the party, that is indeed much more let's go for, you know, liberalization of the economy, the free market, etc. Um, so even within these two main political parties who have brokered a political compromise and who are leading the country, you know, together they make up a, you know around 60% of the electorate um, because they are so divided themselves over you know, what policies, economic policies to choose, that I'm a little bit afraid that this, yeah, this important issue, and also with the security threat always looming behind, is being put on the back burner. To put it that way. Okay. Yeah. Hi. Um. So I'm a post-grad student here at LSC and I'm from China. Ellen Beek.
3: Yeah. <laughs>
9: So um, I just wanted to jump on your point. I thought that it was interesting that you kind of see economic reforms and um, within the within um, sort of the role of political institution and um, this idea of social dialogue. But I think that um, something that we probably maybe need to keep in mind um, is that the traditional economic elites have not really been removed by the revolution, and they actually have been. Um, I mean. So I think that people look at um, sort of uh, crony capitalism in Tunisia during the Ben Ali period as being the um, the close family of the president and the Trabelsi family. Well, in fact, it was, I think, um, there were way more protagonists than what we saw or that um, maybe the post-revolution kind of uh, portrayed. Um, and so I think that those, I mean, this part of this economic elite, which was um, very influential during the Ben Ali period is still here. And I mean, just the example of the the, the, the law proposition of mm-hmm. the kind of shows that they're not ready to go and that um, the traditional the um, traditional political institutions too, and people in the Tunis and things like that also kind of belong within this economic elite. So that the idea of economic reform is very limited. And I think that also play within um, why um, Kind of regional differences are not really in the like at the top of the picture, and they're not really considered within like political change. And why we're still kind of this idea of Tunisianity of kind of changing things from outside, like um, the constitution, and after being acknowledged by like the international arena with the Nobel Prize, play within that rather than having um, real structural changes. And that's not um, like complete like. Front Populaire-type economic reform, which is um, considering regional
3: differences and considering
1: um, economic reforms. Yeah. Yes, uh, thank you for um, that remark. Um, now, you know, it's a very difficult issue. Um, the economic elites. Um, after the revolution, what happened? Even a government led by a Nahda, it was the Troika government, did not really want to touch them, because that's where the money is, you need a business elite for your country if you want to you know, kickstart an economy that already after the revolution was um, uh, facing a lot of challenges. So what they did is basically say, okay, we have made a list about 400, they say first, and they said 160, and then they said 36, nobody ever saw a list or whatever of, of businessmen that were under the radar of justice. And they told them basically, look, you cannot uh, run away, you cannot move your money outside of Tunisia. But you must remain here and work, and let the people work, because if you stop working, then we have nothing anymore, there's already jobs, uh, not enough jobs, so if, if we're going to punish you now, here today, there's no more national economy. So even a that didn't dare to touch these people. And then the question is, you know, okay, why were they in it? Now, it's, I think, quite obvious that business people, they're in the game for one thing, that is making a profit. Does that make All capitalists, all businessmen, uh, you know, immoral persons that do not feel that there's a problem with the interior of the country, that there's regional disparities and injustice and so on and so forth. I'm not really sure. So I don't think it's that important to know whether um, they remain or not. I mean, they they are the business elite of the country they, they, they will not go away or if they will go away there will be no national economy left basically but it's different story for example what Nida Tunis is doing right now with the proposition of the reconciliation law the Tassamah law where the opposition parties and Nada and said look you know uh, it's not a question so much of punishing you personally but we want to find out about all the money that you made over the last decades, uh, how much there was par- uh, based on corruption, of um, uh, money that was basically for the public good, that was uh, channeled to your firms, etc. So how much actually did you win for yourself? Hmm. Um, bank loans that were given without any interest, uh, taxes that were evaded, all that kind of stuff, so that you can start repaying us back. That was a, a, a proposition that I thought was thoughtful and balanced, in the sense that, you know, at least it wasn't a question of putting all these people into jail, but made them at least pay a part of the amounts of money that they stole then from the public as the Tunisians would see it. But now this is indeed completely out of the picture with a reconciliation law that basically just says, let's bury everything, it's fine. (laughs) We we bury the past. So that is really a problem. But you have seen already the mobilizations again from all kinds of sectors of society that are going against that. Yep.
0: And we have a few more. Just to say, you know, uh, it's really a terrific discussion. It's great to have someone who actually knows their case. But... um, uh, but as well, you know, mobilization, contention is the above all the focus that we're yeah. trying to uh, pick away at. But um, this gentleman.
4: Right. Um I'm a graduate student at University of um, I read your paper this morning but I read it rather horribly, so I might have missed out because I read it online. I basically have two main two main points. One, which which, which don't come out through the paper for me, has there been a revolution in Tunisia? Mm-hmm. And if there has what does that mean? Right? That's a very general question, I know. But I mean, I'm sure we can, we can, we can narrow it down, you know, uh, the, in order to say yes or no. Or we can say that there's an ongoing revolution. That the thing has not been really resolved yet and there is a process. My second question is about nahda And I think here, um, my question has to do with, with, with the Arab world as a whole. nahda is seen as being very unique in that it has played the game differently than the Islamists in Libya, in Egypt, or in Syria. And it is seen by many as a model, that al-Nahda and other Islamist movements in the region have electoral power. There's no denying that. Uh, The point is, how will they use this power? In Egypt, we saw how they use it, and we saw how it ended. In Syria, well, I mean, we're seeing what's happening. and has come out, in a sense, as, as, as trying to, to, to be a, Christi- a Christian or a modern democratic party in that sense, in that model. Um, does that say anything within Tunisia itself, or is this really not a relevant issue? Mm-hmm. Thank you. <coughs>
1: yes, thank you. Has it been a revolution? I thought that I would have to, <laughs> have to answer that question. Um, I think in the first first place it is because the Tunisians themselves have called it a revolution. I think that's a very important uh, part of it. But it's true that the first phase of the revolution, the liberation phase, was, was successful, while the constitution phase, like creating a new political order, was much more mitigated. And therefore, even today, there's a lot of people who say the revolution is still going on. Others say that the counter-revolution has succeeded. And still others are saying, like, well, you know, it was only half a revolution to begin with. So, you know, it's not really a clear-cut answer to your question. But instead of defining, you know, ex-post or from the outside what a revolution should look like in 2010-2011, I keep on using the term because the Tunisians themselves refer to it as a revolution even those who are very critical of it and are critical of what happened afterwards they still talk about mm-hmm. Um And then another: nahda um, is it an issue in Tunisia? Uh, yes and no. Um, I would say that the, f- the elites that have ruled t- Tunisia for a long time they didn't dismiss that. They don't want to see a nahda as a model. They still think that even though there has been a compromise uh, they still think to a large, and especially one group within Nida Tunis, that uh, Nahda is um, using doublespeak, that their real nature will show in the future, that they're awaiting their time, that they're basically not different from the Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood or the Syrians or whatever, because it's all the same. And actually, there's the discourse of a small part of Nida Tunis is as Islamophobic as Geert Wilders in Holland or the British National Party it's the same discourse that they're using against Islam they're a little less public about it than in Europe but against the party they're very harsh but on the other hand this is a party that whatever it has done when it uh, was part of the government it still holds on to a certain 25 to 30% of the electorate so it is an important part of the Tunisian population that still is behind that party. So for these people it matters um, and it could be that indeed it is a model. Now people uh, I know throughout the country have sometimes told me that uh, they say in Egypt sometimes <laughs> the, the secret word or the password is uh, Tunisia. Uh, uh, b- and they mean by that that they look at what, for example, a Nahda has done um, to to learn lessons to see whether they, they could use some of these strategies and the tactics in their own uh, in in their own fight. Now again, this is not only in Nahda since 2011. Uh, when you look at the history of the movement and its creation in 72 as a Quranic Association uh, organization and in 79 with the Mouvement de la Tendance Islamique. Even then, when you read their ideological work, it was already quite different from what was going on in Egypt or in, in, in Morocco at the same time. Ganushi uh, himself said in '74 he visited Egypt and they were talking about educational reform. Um, and he asked an Egyptian Muslim brother, like, you know, how do you think we should reform our educational systems? You are still influenced by the British system. We were the French. And the Muslim brother from Egypt basically gave him uh, a letter that uh, Hassan al-Banna wrote in forty-one or forty-two or so, and and, and Ghanoushi was shocked. Like, oh, yeah, how can you address issues of the seventies with with the letter that uh, the guide wrote in in, in the nineteen forties? And for him, it was all you know already a way of delinking from from that type of thinking and being much more pragmatic, I would say, and realistic about certain issues. And this is the line that uh, Anada has followed since revolution. It has been a very rational, very moderate um, actor that has actually given in more than it has uh, gotten in return in terms of uh, short-term political uh, dividends, if I may call it that way. But I do think that in the longer term... It, it'll, will, it will will it benefit the, the party, even though it has some internal problems to deal with, too, because it's, for some people, mm. too moderate.
0: <laughs> yeah, very interesting. Well, if I can throw something in, I mean, I am, I, I, I mean, I'm very interested in this, I mean, you mentioned yeah the possibility of a revolution, it's so just, I mean, of course, there are so many manoeuvres in one one way or another, but then there's this big event that took place and then unfolded resting on some version of contentious politics and this question of moral economy that's that can help us uh, explain it. I'm still trying to understand what it is and how we can think about it concretely, you know, a shared set of understandings that define a specific version of justice or injustice in terms of the relationship between a a predatory clan and uh, and then something that's understood to be the people so if that's and this is a shared set of meanings that people hold uh, across class positions and that will in and that, and that that's that has this tremendous force and then and then and then you think well why does it fall apart um, so so quickly as it were or does it fall apart is it simply you know, the removal of the common enemies, especially as it seems that there is still a lot of, you know, pre-2011 elites in power. And then, but then, and so, but maybe a way of getting into that question, these experienced activists in Sidi Bouzid, who, as you said, they said, okay, we have to frame Bouazizi in a certain way. We can't, because otherwise it will just be seen as the narrow interests of, say, one... Individual, or he's desperate, or he committed suicide, and so they speak about dignity. And they speak about uh, the people. But is this, um, is that, a, a positive story or a negative story? Is it that they, they therefore reached out to wider constituencies, and that was a good thing, or did they abstract out those social, economic questions—the water, the access to land, the real issues? that matter to so many ordinary people and turn it into a more abstracted story that lots of people would buy into, perhaps only temporarily, but that was illusory. I mean, I, I just happened to be reading an article in, on the Irish Land League in the 1880s and what they did with these socio-economic burning questions of peasants being evicted from their houses uh, and and all tied up with the British settler colonialism and... and uh, and how, and this tactic of the boycott where you ostracise the person who is said to be responsible. And, and it's, but you know, this question of, uh, and it, of course it's keyed into larger issues of nation. Sorry, I'm, I'm going on, aren't I? But, um, but um, you know, like I say, this story of those activists, are they savvy with their framing? Or are they in fact generating abstractions which are sort of doomed to then fall mm-hmm. to pieces again? Um so that that's one set of questions. Yeah. Uh, perhaps if someone wants to do you want to comp- I Yeah. Um, thank you for the uh talk. It was very really, uh, it, it was really
10: good. And the um I really enjoyed reading this so Thank you. I just had it sort of a broad You want to say who you are? Just oh, so right. sorry, my name is I'm a genison graduate with a specialisation in Middle East and all mathematics. Um just generally in terms of uh, you mentioned that obviously Tunisia has a link with Western Europe and you know, it's in Europe in general, mm. and their link should you know, expand itself. But how much has the West helped um, you know, the Tunisian economy grow? I mean, we've all seen um, you know, the terrorist attacks in Tunisia, and we noticed that Britain, I mean, the UK was one of the few countries that told. Going to Tunisia after that, and that really hit the economy hard. And obviously, tourism is one of the biggest things that holds up the economy in Tunisia. Um, so, that was one of the things how much it helps or how much it can help in the future. And also, um, when does
0: it, it as in the, the economic relationships between Tunisia and yeah, the EU, how much and they, they
10: help? How much does, because we were talking about going towards a more economy in Tunisia, how much does that depend on the region in general rather than Tunisia? Because, I mean, government can always um, try and look for solutions within the country itself, but it's always tied down to the region. I mean, we're seeing what's happening in Libya and Algeria. It's really unsettled, and that really does have an effect on the entire economy in Tunisia. to what extent
1: does it not does it reach a point where it doesn't depend on what Tunisia does anymore? It, it depends on what happens in a wider region mm. and how that can be helped. Thank you. I'll, I'll start with these questions. Um, well, how much has the EU helped the economy in Tunisia grow? Uh, well, um, economic aid is tricky. It's not really aid. It's it's there's always you know um, certain uh, conditions that are tied to it. I mean, when you get money, you need to implement certain type of uh, policies. You need to do certain things, and um, to a certain extent, after the revolution, EU but also the IMF and the World Bank listened to the uh, to the. To the demands of t- t- Tunisia, for example, not to cut directly the subsidies for fuel or the subsidies for uh, food and staples and so on and so forth, um, which cost the state a lot. So, a very neoliberal liberal approach would say, cut these subsidies, and the government will already have much less trouble of uh, having a, a balance of uh, of payment or uh, and, and so on and so forth. So, how much does the EU help? you know, depends on your position in society. A lot of people would say, well, we need, don't need that type of help because it's very conditional on implementing certain development developmental policies that we do not agree with. And others would say, well, we don't have another solution. We have to go to the IMF, we have to go to the EU and ask for money. And yes, that money, we don't get it for nothing. First of all, most of that money we have to pay back on top of it with a certain amount of interest. <coughs> but we also have to implement certain policies and then you know it's always a discussion what kind of policies does Tunisia want to implement and, and what it doesn't then of course you know after your attacks when UK decided not to send any tourists anymore to Tunisia well you know that's very understandable I mean the country that, is, uh, that has been hit so hard in these attacks of Sousse uh, cannot play with you know the security of its citizens and say well yeah go, go back again you know it can't. It had to send out the signal to the to the to the public here. So of course that's not helping the tourism sector and thus the economy in Tunisia. I think it's about forty percent of the economy is uh, It comes from tourism. So that of course uh, affects negatively the the economy. And then, how much is dependent on the region? Yes, like I said, I mean whether it's the EU, which of course is a, is a more powerful union economically speaking, but uh, the instability in Libya and then uh the the choices that Algeria makes do impact of course on the 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 choices that Tunisia could possibly, possibly have um, but that's yeah that remains an open question and like i said it it will be up to a negotiated internal uh consensus on you know what kind of policies it wants and also what kind of policies are possible and John, to your question that's a very very good one, a very difficult one because that's the one i've been yeah, struggling with for quite a, f- a few years now. Um, the, the falling apart of the, of the people mm-hmm. um, is actually, it, it didn't happen overnight also. What is interesting to see is that for me actually, of course, the 14th of January, the day that Ben Ali leaves is, is crucial, is uh, highly symbolic and important. But I think a crucial date in uh, the revolutionary process was actually March the 2nd or was it the 3rd of 2011 when the interim president abrogated the constitution um, appointed a government of technocrats uh, outlawed the RCD the Benelise party and uh, called for the election of a national constituent constituent assembly. All these demands were demands from Uh, people, and I would say basically the people, that kept on uh, mobilizing and organized two important crucial sit-ins at the Kasbah Square. That's the square where uh, most of the ministries and especially the Prime Ministry are located in uh, Tunis. And... It's true that even there we saw the first cracks in what the people were, because when the big sit-in at Kasbah, the second one, in February 2011 was busy, and another side of Tunis, in the more residential neighborhood, middle-class neighborhood of Menzah, you had the so-called silent majority um, also uh, mobilizing to say, look, you know, we got rid of the dictator now you know, it's back to business eh? so what they want was basically the same as the old but without the corruption the nepotism and the crony capitalism of the predatory family of uh, Ben Ali so there were cracks indeed but it doesn't, didn't disappear overnight it, it kept on going and the mobilization was hard and without that mobilization um, we would have <coughs> some sort of controlled transition uh, from above uh, it, it it was a demand of the, I would say, the street, the revolutionary legitimacy of the street, to have elections of a national uh, constitu- constituent assembly. Mm. This was not something foreseen by the Constitution, which was still um, in, 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 how do you say that, in, in office, no? <laughs> um, the Constitution said that there were 60 days to organize elections, presidential elections. And, of course, everybody knew that 60 days was, was uh, in, impossible but at least in the beginning, uh, when you looked at the government and the way it worked, there was this sense that this could, could be managed from above. And mm-hmm. I think Tunisia was lucky that at the end of January, everybody left the country and went to Egypt. Because everybody wanted to see Tahrir, what was going on there. And of course, I understand. Very important. But because they were far away uh, from the media attention... Um, the Tunisians could you know and, and also the international actors Egypt was much more important to follow than t- the small Tunisia in uh, North Africa. Uh, the mobilization kept on going mm. and it 's the the street that put the the transition the first transitional government under so much pressure that they had to step down basically and accept uh, all the demands of uh, a large part of the population, even though the first cracks were already visible of those people who thought, well, you are going too far. Mm-hmm. And this is something that then the months after that continued, mm-hmm. that you s- tend to, to see that mobilizations kept on going, like mm-hmm. today, there's not one day without a strike, or a sit-in, a petition or whatever in Tunisia, yeah. but indeed that that we the people... Has become smaller and smaller. If, if I may say <laughs> it that way, mm. now whether these people in Sidibuzi now think that they're reaching out, their mm. framing of Boazizi was something that was was positive, mm. or that it was you know so much abstracting the local uh, the local claims and the local problems away underneath that that mm. just in feeling of injustice. It's double because when I talk to the the people who. Uh, who <coughs> who were busy with that? They say that you know, without that national revolt, we we wouldn't have had that change. Uh, it it was still possible that the repression of the regime would have worked. Yep. So we needed that, yep. and we thought it's true that once we would get rid of Ben Ali and that a new political system would be put in place, that we have that we would have a, a larger voice in the debate. <laughs> and this, yes, we they agreed we. Um, we we did not make it. We did not get out of it what we wanted, um, but at least we have a voice now. They still don't listen enough, but you know the freedom of speech is something that that is now a reality in Tunisia. They don't shut up anymore, so they keep on going. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, so we have time for one more, and then uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, hi.
11: Um, my name is I wanted just your comments on like the present political situation and the possibilities of development of this situation because uh, uh, at least for what I see, um, together with this illusion that revolution didn't uh, succeed in many many ways, um, I know that a lot of people kept on telling me Indonesia before we knew that there was one thief. Now there's a lot of thieves, but this just keep on stealing from the people. And. Um, I know that together with this disillusion, there's a, a, also a lot of awareness, at least uh, among the young people that are more active in civil society. Uh, you mentioned before, like um, what, what you were saying about the Samah law, there is uh, this new movement that just uh, started like a couple of months ago in Aminish samah so like, mm-hmm. I don't forgive them. And, mm-hmm. and it is moving, it's taking the street and it's becoming, or the, the movement this summer of Winu petrol in like the, the most interior mm-hmm. region. Uh, tackling the issue of petrol, and um, um, I see that um, on one side people are, are very aware of what of what is happening, and also the fact that between Nahda and in the Tunis there's no real distinction, if not that one's one pretend to be secular and the other is Islamist. And I like when there were the the last election, uh, I, I was queuing together with the people to ask like. What, well, well, who they were voting for, and what was there, and I remember that everybody was not voting for a party; everybody was voting against Ennahda. It was not a vote because people believed that Nidatunis was a real option, uh, but just because they didn't want Islamists to to go in power, and there was like this Islamophobia that was really um, that was really present, and uh, um Tunis was playing and. Uh, uh, was playing on this Islamophobia to the point that I, I, I've heard a lot of people telling me that the first terrorist attacks in the Chibale shambi were almost manufactured in order to mm. push people to vote against the Islamists. Mm-hmm.
0: All right. So, is that your? Are you? The,
11: the question. The question mm. is what like since people know and a lot of people know that there's no real distinction and this this big political coalition is not really doing their interest and it's not even going in the direction of doing the interest of the people what do you think is the role of the front Populaire in this in this and how much do you think that they have space okay
1: great (coughs) Uh, thank you very much for this last comment and and question because i think we have come full circle um (laughs) Uh, I, I agree that, um, I mean, it's not nothing that a, a political compromise has been brokered between uh, certain elites. But the fact of the matter is, is that all these forms of awareness, like you say, and these mobilizations of youngsters and not so young people, you know, from the whole of society, Um shows that the social and economic issues are the most important. And of course, you have the looming security uh, threats in the back always. But uh, these are crucial questions. Um, and for a certain time, people could um, hide behind the fact we need first to install the institutions and this and that. No, okay, they're there, the institutions, and they're working and the elections and this and that. So now it's time to address these issues that, that, that you say. Um, and I think I gave already parts and, and pieces of information on the, the problems with Nahda and Nida Tunis. Uh, you know, Nida Tunis is not a, it's not a political party, it's a coalition against Nahda. And it's true that what binds these people together is this same idea of Tunisianity with a little bit of tweaking, uh, with the, uh, let's call it, you had a, a Bourguiba version of Tunisianity, you had the Ben Ali version, and now you have the 3.0 version, let's say the post-Ben Ali version. Um, so it's a tweaked version, but it's what these, these people share, a certain idea on what the Tunisian people should be, uh, on the Tunisian identity, and this is uh, pretty much against everything that uh, Anada says. At the same time, they are pragmatic and realistic enough to have understood that some sort of compromise was necessary with another, because they're more or less as big. And I think, you know, the next election will bring another back to power and they will go back and forth for a foreseeable future. Now, your question then is, are there alternatives? Well, as long as the social and economic issues are not tackled, there is a market if I may use the word, a political market then, for uh, for example, the Front Populaire for these type of movements to, to get organized, but there too it's a front, and alas in Tunisia, fronts tend to be uh, shaky uh, to say the least because a lot of times there's a lot of political egos that you know, have to go through the same door at the same time, and they have difficulties of doing that so as much as their internal organization is already a little bit problematic, as much is their discourse, sometimes, sometimes, too radical, I think, to really muster enough um, power to, to really influence the debates in a certain way that, that people would adopt their views. However, what they, would, what they can become in the near future, if they play it strategically well is to become an important third broker in the political system. If by the next elections, both Nidatouns and Nava lose a little bit because people would you know, tend to say, well, you know, it didn't change a lot with these... And they grow a little bit, then specific coalitions can be made. And they can access power by becoming that, that third party that can decide between a coalition with that or that party. And thus, indeed, steer the political economy issue of the country in a certain direction. So they're not to be underestimated, but they still have um, a long way to go to become, how how can I say, a well-organized political movement, which is still lacking a little bit. (coughs) Even smaller movements that are much more centrist and pro-market that exist since the revolution that didn't exist before have been... um, more efficient, I think, in their organization to speak uh, to, to to the people.
0: Mm. All right. Well, very good. Well, we've kept you at it for two hours, <laughs> Professor Sally Zemni, and we're very happy to have you here, and as I say, that's a very rich uh, very rich uh, presentation and discussion. But I wanted to thank you all for coming, to thank uh, the Middle East Center, and especially Sandra Speer, uh, for organizing this, along with the Government Department and Jan Bodling. Uh, for that very interesting, provocative discussion, and um, and uh, yes, I think uh, above all to thank uh, Sammy Zemly for coming. And uh, if we want to carry on the discussion, let's have a uh, cup of tea or a drink in the George afterwards. Everyone's welcome. And uh, let's thank uh, Sammy and thanks for coming. No, thank you.